happens to Friday the 13th, but there is one directly linked to Christianity. Believe it or not, there is a thought process that says that Friday the 13th comes out of Christianity. It's a superstition that Christians came up with. And it does make sense. There were 13 people there at the Last Supper. Twelve of them were Christ followers. One was a pretend one and turned on Jesus. There's your number 13. And that person, Judas, turns on Jesus, and what happens? He dies on the Friday. There is actually a belief that maybe that superstition comes from the thought that 13 is unlucky and so is Friday because it led to the death of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Superstition creeps its way into everything. We end up doing certain things that are going to make life better for us that actually aren't proven. We have our wives' tales, those things handed down generation to generation. I don't know if you go online much, but sometimes you come to those videos, crazy things people did in the so-and-so century, and you read them and you're just shocked. The things that were supposed to, to make us more cleanly or supposed to help us out in some way, now we know probably was killing us. But they were believed as truth. How many times have you heard, if you sit too close to the TV, you'll go blind? Well, now the TVs are so big that you're too close no matter where you are. The truth is, there's actually no backing to that. Chances are you won't go blind. A little fuzzy-eyed for a while, but your body should be able to recover from it. Or if you look or hold that face too long, it will stay that way. That was just a trick. There is no way you can hold your face long enough that your muscles will change that much. Eventually, you have to sleep, and it will relax. It's a wives' tale used to get our kids to stop making faces at us. Let's get back to the number 13 as being bad luck. Have you ever noticed on the elevator there's no floor 13? Now, I don't know how stupid people think we are, but it doesn't matter what you call that floor. It's still the 13th floor, right? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, blue. Still floor 13. You can number it 14. It is floor 13, but whoa, you don't want to live there. That's the bad luck floor. We raised our kids in Markham, Ontario, and we moved there just as Britain was handing back Hong Kong. We had a mass exodus of wealthy Chinese people wanting to get out of Hong Kong before the communists took over. And we learned they have their number, too. It's the number four. Four is a bad luck number, but they're not like us. We have 13, and that's it. Anything with a four in it is bad luck. 14 is bad luck. 44 is bad luck. 444, I don't know what that is. It's beyond bad luck. My understanding is it's because if you mispronounce it, I could be wrong, but if you mispronounce it, it sounds like death instead of the number four. So now we've got a problem. We've brought European culture with its number 13 together with Asian culture. How do we do math? What is three plus one? It's five, because if you answer four, you'll have bad luck for the rest of your test. What is 12 plus one? It can't be 13. That's bad luck. It can't be 14, that's bad luck. So the answer is 15. This is what they meant by the new math. We're going to change it to different superstition numbers. Doesn't stop there. Break a mirror, seven years bad luck. Let me tell you something. If you're so ugly that you look in a mirror and it breaks, you have a lifetime of bad luck ahead of you. 
If a black cat crosses your path, bad luck. No, you trip. It's a bad day. Don't walk under a ladder. Bad luck. No, stupid. Some will fall on your head. Don't do it. Step on a crack. Break your mother's back. My mom's back's fine, and I tried all my childhood when I was upset, step on the crack. She broke her hip. I don't know what I stepped on for that, but her back is fine. Cricket in the house is good luck. Next day, if you try and go around after trying to sleep with a cricket in the house, you're going to have probably a bad luck day. It's tough to sleep with that. Anyway, we avoid numbers. We come up with systems. It's been the playoffs. People stop shaving. They make sure they put on their athletic equipment the same leg at a time. Heaven forbid you put the right leg on first instead of the left leg because you're not going to score a goal. And then there's things that aren't superstitions. My mother's not superstitious. She's watching today here, so I don't know what's going to happen when I get home, but we'll see. Anyway, she's not superstitious, but she read the magazines that tell you how to feed people to make them healthy. And we got into that. Now, some of it was handed down from generation to generation. Some was in the magazines. But my mother decided to remove half the sugar from everything she baked. Oh, she made the best apple pies at one time. She didn't replace it with Steva or any of that stuff. There was just no sweetness. So now the second course that you looked forward to was as bland as the first course. Now, we're British in background. We kill the cow, we boil the cow, we bake the cow, we boil it again, we kill it again. We, we make sure there's no chance it's going to make any noises even when you cut it. It is dry. My shoes are more tender than what we eat in British families. But there was this belief that you had to do, at one point you had to do this, but they've held on to that belief. If they see pink in their meat, they think they're going to die. Then we started to remove the skin and the bone from everything. Because we need skinless, boneless, fatless, flavorless cardboard so we can live longer. We ate liver. Does anybody know what the liver does? It cleans the toxins out of the animal, and yet it's good for us. We ate fish. It's brain food because she read it somewhere. I hate to tell you, but with the amount of mercury, it's dead brain food. It'll kill you. Now, I do have to be fair to my mom. On June 13th, which sometimes is a Friday, but it isn't this year, she turned 91. And other than that broken hip, she's healthy. She may have had something there, but I think I'd rather die in my 80s eating all the fat I want and sugar and be happy. We get caught up in the latest fad, the latest trend. We have our wives' tales. Okay, I got more here, and I don't want to waste them, so bear with me. We'll get to the Jesus sermon part, but I got some more wives' tales. Eight Glasses of water a day and you'll lose weight. Yes, you will, because you have to run to the toilet so often you lose weight. When they remove your kidney, you will lose weight because you've had too much water. You know where that came from? As best as I could figure out, it was a water bottling company that decided to release that that was good for you. Gee, I wonder why. Better sales, maybe? Now we're against plastic bottles, so it changes. I've also heard that if you place a clove of garlic in a mouth, you'll get no colds. Trust me, no one's going to kiss you. You're not going to get a cold. That doesn't work for COVID, I don't think. But that's a great wives' tale. My favorite is the lucky rabbit's foot. The rabbit had four feet. It's dead. Rabbit's feet are not lucky. We need to stop the wives' tales, but they sneak in. And we do it. And they sneak into our faith. And we come up with ideas and fads that are going to bring us to success in our faith. Our churches will be successful if we follow the latest wives' tale book or fad. 
is an incredibly dangerous thing. We may not call it luck. We may say it's God's blessing, but if we do it just right, it's going to be fine. Now, I'm not a big believer in reading the intros to book, or I wasn't until I wrote my own book and saw how much time it takes to write the intro. I want to read to you from the intro to Blueprint. I know it's self-serving, but I'm going to read it anyway. For many, their church home was just a new pastor away from success, an outreach program away from growth, a more contemporary style of service away from stopping the youth from leaving. They knew what a great church looked like, at least according to the latest how-to-do church books. All they had to do was patch this up, paint over that, update the look, and they would be well on their way to creating a successful, strong collective of Christ followers. In the North American church, we've bought into wives' tales. We've got a solution for everything, but is it biblical? The toughest thing to overcome in transitioning, no matter what church I go into, is that there's got to be a plan we can come up with. There's got to be some system that will bring, we won't call it good luck, church growth, God blessing us. We'll introduce something new, we'll patch up something old, but it's got to be that. But transition and change is about finding out what God has for you. It's about finding out where God wants you to go. So far in Blueprint, we've covered the fact that we want to rest everything on God, that He's our footings. He takes the weight of life. He determines how big everything is, and He supports only what He calls us to do. And we tie into God and are supported by God through His love. We love God and we're tied into Him. He loves us and He holds us up. And we love our neighbors and we love ourselves. I don't know if you notice that. Love your neighbor as yourself. For some of us, that means we hate our neighbors. That statement is meant to say we are to love ourselves and love our neighbors and love God. And that's the stuff below ground in our metaphoric house. It holds us up, it ties us in, but we need to be supported in everyday life. We need something that gives us structure to our lives. I believe in the North American church, the word is busyness. We are busy, and that makes us feel effective. It is the wives' tale we've bought into. Keep busy, do stuff, and you'll be effective. It's not the biblical way. It's not the answer. As we already discussed, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. What is it that we need for spiritual, structural soundness in our lives Believe it or not, it's an Old Testament verse. I find it funny. We call ourselves the New Testament church, right? We get this idea that Jesus died and we're defined by that. The Old Testament has incredible value. The Old Testament has the statement on revival, and guess what? It's us stopping, not starting. 2 Chronicles 7.14. King Solomon is dedicating the temple. And prophetically he speaks God's words. And the words are, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear down from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Wow, that doesn't quite work with my schedule. I got stuff to do. Someone told me if I start this program, everything will explode. God tells me if I stop, he'll do something. 
God tells us that if we want our lives to be renewed and powerful in Him, we need to stop the wives' tales. He didn't put it that way. I'm not quoting Scripture there. But when you read something that says, if my people, let's not mistake in this, if my people was for the Jewish people, but we are told we are grafted in, as believers in Christ, as ones who've been saved through Jesus' blood, we are grafted in. We too are God's chosen people. So when he says, if my people, he's talking to you and I, followers of Christ. We're the ones called by his name. But then it says, humble themselves and pray. Prayer as a verbal action is what we do before we have our food. Speaking of superstitions, we bless the food. Often it comes out of our mouths because it's just a, a tradition we have. Got to bless the food in case we didn't cook that cow long enough and it's going to kill us. I guess that's what it is. But we have that idea. It's almost like a superstition. We must pray before food. We must pray before this and after this. Is that humble prayer or is that just saying stuff? Is it a habit? Humble prayer says, I come before God and I say, God, I can't. I don't know how. I do not have on my own enough value to make this work. I need you. Are our prayers humble? Or are they demanding? Do we actually go before God in true humble prayer? Or do we go with our shopping list? Have we already decided how God's going to work? Because that's the comfort zone. Hey, I'm just as guilty. Hey, God, this is going on, and if you do this, it'll work out. And God, I can see him up there. I, I don't know what he looks like. I don't think he has the finger-pointed thing, but he's up there looking down at me and going, Dave, don't you get it? You think it works this way, but I'm working over here, here, and here, and I'm going to bring it together. It takes humility to go before God and say, God, what? What will you have me do? God, I am a failure, a sinner, and a mess, but you love me. Help me. It takes humility to thank God for the food on your table and recognize that food is there because God let it be there. I don't know what food supplies are going to be like in Canada this year, but I don't want to scare you. We may experience things that we would call at least second world issues. It may not be as bad as third world issues, but I'm already making choices on what we eat compared to putting gas in the car. I'm not starving, don't get me wrong. But just to thank God for our food may become something we're humbled to do when we're sitting there making up soups with the flavor of meat where we'd be having a steak. Life changes and a humble prayer recognizes that everything is a blessing from God, that God is there for us with a plan and desires to lead us in his perfection through darkness and through light. Are we humble enough to truly pray? Because that's what's going to hold us together. Are we a people that get on our knees in front of God, or are we just busy for God? Do we give over to God? It is a challenge. I know in any church, if I start a program, and I advertise it enough, I'm going to get volunteers. I'm going to challenge you today, in your church, if I advertise a prayer meeting, will people show up? I can't remember where I read this. I think it's fresh wind, fresh fire, and I'm not sure if Simbaluk is actually quoting himself or someone else, but the gist of it was Sunday morning shows how popular the pastor is. 
Sunday evening, we used to have services on Sunday evening in church, shows how popular the church is, how friendly we are. And the prayer meeting shows how popular God is. What a challenge. Are we willing to lay on our faces in front of God and say nothing? I was on staff at a church where every morning we would go into the church part, not because it was a church part, it wasn't a traditional church, we didn't need to be near the altar, so to speak, but we would get together, we had rugs to lie on because the floors were dirty, and we would just pray and sometimes say nothing. And we'd say, God, what would you have us do? God, what do you want to go on? God, we are here begging you to speak to us, O Lord, and give us direction. It was humble prayer. But he doesn't stop there. The verse says, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. That to me is a challenge. Because I think we try to live our life with a foot on each side, right? Our wicked ways, we still want to be in our own way, but we want to seek God's face. But it says, seek my face and turn from your wicked ways. That is repentance. That is a turnaround. That is begging us not to follow our own desires and what makes us comfortable, but to go into God's presence. What is someone's face? It is their character. It's who they are. To seek God's face is to seek his perfection and his character. We want revival in our churches, but we're not quite sure we want to give up a little bit of our own selves. Revival comes when we pray humbly and let God be God. The structure of our lives comes and is strong when we let God be the one we seek. My life, personally, is a mixture of God's ways and my ways. And we can pull that off. It just doesn't work well. I got some stuff handled. I don't need to pray about this or that because I can figure it out. But over here, I need God. That's not the way he designed us, but that is the struggle throughout our lives. But if we want God to show up, if we want revival in our lives, it is time to give up the superstitions and wives' tales that there are certain things for God, certain things for us, and turn it over to Him. To turn our backs, our own selfish desires. God wants to do great things. But God is a gentleman. God does not step in where He is not wanted. And that is to our detriment. God today could step into this church and do what he wanted. But God's desire is that we'll come to know him, love him, and trust him. And who needs to trust the God who just shows up and does what he wants whenever? It is learning experience for us to turn to God from our own wickedness and humbly pray. If we have more time in programs than we do in prayer, then who is the God of the church? If we have more time seeking ways to do things to bring us good luck or blessed church than we do actually seeking the one who blesses our church, where have we gotten messed up? God gives us a promise. He says, if you will humbly pray, seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Forgive your sins and heal your land. When you repent, I will move. I will bring healing. God promises there's a response to that, but the truth is we're not good at it, first of all. And second of all, maybe we don't feel we need it. I envy in some ways those who have nothing because they know they need God. I am blessed. 
I drive here in a nice car, and I've got things. I got food. I got. I'm not rich, but I got stuff. I can go to the refrigerator and pull out a can of Coke, where some can't go to the refrigerator because they don't have one, and are just hoping to boil something with a little flavor and salt in it to survive. But in some ways, I think I start to envy them because I don't humbly go to God. Why would I? I don't need God, but I really do. What if we started saying, God, how can I love you better? Because he says, love you with all you are. Love me with all you are. How can I love my neighbor better? I don't know how. How can I love myself better? How can we as a church become the church you call us to be? That takes humility because then you're saying, I don't know. It takes turning from our own ideas and saying, God, you're the only way. You can do it. You can read all the books, come up with all the ideas. But the challenge for us today, are we going into revival or are we in survival? That's up to you. God's waiting with his arms open wide and saying, come to me. But do you want to be revived? God's saying, I have a plan. I've got a time. I've got the resources. I got everything ready. Will you wait on me, or will you just push ahead? There is a plan, and there's our wives' tales and superstitions. We can follow both. I am so glad that God is gracious, because this isn't a sermon saying, if you mess this up, you're going to hell. It's a sermon saying that life may be a little bit of hell if you don't follow God. Our salvation does not lie in our ability to please God, but our joy is much more full when we try to please God. I think most churches in North America are in survival mode. But what if we said, stop? No more until we pray and become revived. Historically, it proves itself out to be the beginning of revival. What if we said, no more of my ways, only your ways? How much more structurally sound would we become if we humbled ourselves and prayed and sought God's face, turned from our wickedness and became followers of Christ in every way in our lives. I know for myself when I do that, it gets a heck of a lot better. I also know it gets worse because Satan does not like it when we follow God. It gets worse from the standpoint that the attacks get worse, but it's so much more stable because you feel God there leading you and guiding you. There's a proven track record of marketing in every book you read that's on church. There's a proven track record of miraculous actions in only one book. God wants to heal our land. God wants to move us forward. God has a plan. We got to decide whether we're following that or not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I guess if we're going to preach, I'm going to have to say, God, we don't know. I don't know. I humbly say, your will be done. God, I know you have plans for great revival. And you're asking, who will come to me and let me do it? God, let it be grace today. Let it be us today that are on our knees. That instead of telling you what to do, are just enjoying you for who you are, your perfection, your plan, your timing, your resources, God.